0: Hello and welcome to the Oxygen Addict Triathlon Podcast. We're brought to you every week by our sponsors PrecisionFuelAndHydration.com. Personalize your fueling and hydration strategy so you can perform at your best. 15% off your first order of electrolytes, gel and drink mixes with the code OA22, PrecisionFuelAndHydration.com. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Coach Rob Wilby, and every week I bring you an episode of this podcast to help motivate and inspire you. This week is an archive edition, an interview brought to you from the past. I've become aware that only the, the previous hundred shows show up in Apple Podcasts or show up in Spotify or wherever. So I've been going back to the archives to dig up some of our older interviews that you might not have heard before. This week, I bring you an interview with double 70.3 world champion Gustav Iden. I recorded this back in April of 2020 um at the time he had just well he was 6 months after winning the 2019 world 70.3 championships where Pretty much burst onto the scene, surprising people by um, impressively outrunning Ali Brownley in Nice. So we've got a great conversation about that. We learn a little bit about his hat, how he became a celebrity in Taiwan, and uh, at the time he talks about his hopes for going on to win both Olympic gold and Kona. So yeah, great stuff. I really hope you enjoy. Uh, I really hope you enjoy this interview. Here we go. This is this week's interview of the week with Gustav Iden. Gustav Eden, welcome to the Oxygen Addict Triathlon Podcast, mate. It's nice to see you again, sitting there in the, the Norwegian sunshine. How are you doing today? Uh,
1: thank you. It's good to be here. And it's, uh, it's good. Yeah, I've been uh, training in the sun for once. Uh, it's been uh, terrible weather lately, but now it's starting to get sunny, so it's nice. Are you back home at the moment in Norway? Yeah, I guess everyone in the world is back home at the moment. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, yeah, I'm training back home
0: so let me get this right do you live is it Bergen you live in
1: yeah I'm still living with my parents in Bergen I've been thinking about uh, moving out but since I'm usually on training camp all year round it's it doesn't really make
0: sense to have my own apartment yet so yeah Yeah. we'll see in the future sure and reminds me how old are you man I'm 23 only 23 and already a world champion man that's amazing (laughs) (laughs) yeah
1: it's it's a strange feeling but it's good
0: well, listen, let's kick off by firstly congratulating you on, uh, on the win at the 70.3 World Championships. Um, that was an amazing race. It was brilliant to sit and watch. Um, can you tell us about the race from your point of view? Because I've been doing my research a little bit before our interview today, and I've got all kinds of um, little facts that I, I want to come out in the interview, but I'd rather have you tell them than me. So talk, yeah. us, through you, talk us through your race in Nice to start with. Uh, yeah, to start with, uh, yeah, I'm usually very
1: nervous before any race, and uh, the world champs in this was not an exception. I actually went to the to, to, uh, to porta potty to vomit before the start.
0: Really? You were that yeah, nervous, hey?
1: Yeah, and it's almost always that nervous. So um, sometimes I manage to control my nerves, sometimes I don't. This time was a uh, so unusual race for me that I couldn't get my head really straight before the start, so... Yeah, I had to go, go and vomit. So, oh, I, but yeah, but it's it's something I um, I'm aware of now. So before I was stressed out, just the feeling to get nervous. So I started to get nervous to become nervous, like two days before the race. But now I just like accept the fact that I'm gonna be nervous. So it's it's not that bad anymore okay but uh yeah so uh, a lot of nutrition goes out there but luckily i've learned my lesson and now i bring some kind of uh, quick nutrition uh for my post vomit uh <laughs> race preparation so i have like a big bottle of a coke or something to just yeah, fill down I after see.
0: Is that quite yeah. common then do you do you throw up before a few of your races
1: uh, yeah, some races, not too much anymore. Before it was every, every single race, but now it's yeah, a couple wow. of times a year.
0: Yeah, That it reminds <laughs> me quite a lot of, um, I read the story about, you might not know this, but Johnny Wilkinson was the, uh, the English rugby player who kicked the winning, the last, minute, the last minute kick that won England the World Cup in rugby. And yeah. he said the same thing. He used to have to get his dad to stop the car and was sick before every game as a yeah. kid and, and all the way into his professional career as well. So maybe there's something about having that extra level of nervousness that really, uh, really gets you ready for the big competition.
1: Yeah. It's uh it's a bit, I would, I would like to not be that nervous, but I mean, it's just who I am. So yeah, it doesn't really matter.
0: Yeah. But, okay. uh,
1: onwards for the race. I uh, remember I was uh, standing on the start line, feeling, like the most stupid guy in the world because I forgot my race nutrition for oh, my back no. pocket. So I didn't have any gels in my um, in my tri-suit. And uh, also, uh, I looked down my foot and I didn't have my timing chip on. Oh, no. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I've lost the race, so I might as well just swim hard for the show. And uh, yeah, let's see how it brings, how it goes. But then I actually got in, uh, in T1 with the leaders and a guy comes running next to me and I was like, here, you lost your timing chip and it hands me to it. So then I realized, okay, I'm not going to get disqualified. These guys have control. They have noticed I don't have a chip. So from there on, everything was kind of more in a calm race way, I would say.
0: Yeah. Hey, but well, that's, was, uh, yeah, that's amazing thinking by those guys, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. So, see, so you, you had a blind river swim. You got out of the swim with the with the very front pack. Yeah. Um, how did the ride go for you? Because obviously, the for those people who don't know, the course at Nice is is quite unique, wasn't it? Flat bit, yeah. steep uphill, steep downhill, flat bit home again.
1: A really challenging bike course, but yeah. uh, it's it's more like the World Series races than the normal seven to three races. So, I guess it was like the perfect race for me having a mix between like Olympic distance and 70.3 guys there so yeah but uh the bad luck with the nutrition didn't stop at me forgetting the gels I also broke my rear bottle cage like in the first k of the bike so I lost my rear bottle cage like, oh, no. straight out of the go and uh yeah I just had to uh change my mindset from doing my own race nutrition to just take everything I could on race course like the from the race suppliers. So uh, (laughs) I had a lot of uh, refocus during the race.
0: So, wow, you basically... So you didn't have any gels in your back pocket. You completely lost your bottle cage off the back of the bike. So you really must have been just completely dependent on what you could grab on the way by.
1: Yeah. So I didn't lose my bottle cage, but it broke. So I could still hang some drink there, but not like in a full bottle. So on all the um, aid stations, I managed to take some bottles and just drink it up as fast as I could because I knew I I couldn't rely on my bottle cages. So uh, I think in the end, it actually was quite good because I ended up going up Col de Vance with no bottles on. So I saved maybe uh, almost two kilos up that hill. And then on the top of the hill, I managed to grab two bottles, one gel and one bar from one aid station.
0: Really?
1: I had (laughs) had full weight down the hill, but no weight up the hill. And actually... (laughs) Watched the replay of the race. And then I said like, brilliant tactics of Gustav. He's racing with no weight uphill. But it was just like a random coincidence.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's fantastic. So it looked like, um, Ali Brownie looked like he went to the front and and went, pretty hard early on going up the hill what was and and the footage wasn't great watching live at like a lot of these big races you, you only tend to see maybe the camera on one person how many of you were in the group going up the Caldavans and and what kind of tempo was being ridden up there
1: uh i actually was a bit behind because i was just i was in like the back back of the front group and uh, i didn't realize that ali and uh, I guess some others have pulled away. So I, I wasn't aware that he was far ahead of us, but I don't know who uh, who was in the group. And uh, in the start of Call of Wands, I heard someone said uh, like, yeah, you're 150 behind. And I was like, that can't be right. <laughs> and then I just saw up the hill and I couldn't even see him. And then I just thought, hmm, maybe it is right. And then I went really hard actually up the hill, much harder than I, I had planned. Because I wanted to ride with someone down the hill to to save some energy. And uh, I got a bit up the hill, and then one said 115. And then I realized, okay, it wasn't 150, it was 115. So it's not that far behind. But actually, up Coldavance, I didn't ride with with a group because I basically ride past
0: everyone. Right. So that's where you made your move then? You went right yeah. at the start of the Coldavance and. Yeah. And whereabouts were you when you caught, let me see, it was Ali, and was it um, Rudy von Berg? Was he the other guy in front, I think? Where did you catch them? Uh,
1: So, Rudy, I catched a bit before the top, but he came past me again. And uh, I think it was Ben Canute. I catched him, like, at the top of the hill. And Ali, I didn't catch before we started descent.
0: Okay. And and that descent in Nice is uh, it's a real it's a real bike rider's descent, isn't yeah. it? And it having... was really fun. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny, I interviewed Holly Lawrence a couple of weeks ago and she had she had the opposite point of view because she's yeah. like, I'm really powerful and I've got you know, I don't have in her words, I don't have very good bike handling skills. So it was a yeah. nightmare for her. Now you're from a cycling background, aren't you, as a kid? That yeah. was your that was your thing. So did you just yeah. love ripping down the the hill yeah, on the way down? It was it was super fun.
1: And uh, having Ellie in front of me, and I watched him as the main like competitors going into uh, to the running, I just knew that he is the pace setter and I'm not going to attack down the hill. I'm just going to save my energy. So it was uh, actually quite nice just sitting in his wheel and uh, relaxing and yeah, trying to
0: save some energy for the run. Nice. And uh, were you aware at that point that I think there was only was there three of you or four of you coming into T2 together?
1: Yeah, I I knew like it was quite tight behind me on the top of the hill because there you get some uh, some lap times or like secondations back to the other guys. But okay. in the downhill you can't really hear anything. So uh, when we came to the um, last few k's going into T2, my brother was there and he said like you have five minutes down to Christian Blumenfeld, and I was like that can't be right, and I knew that i had uh, i at least had a podium because i couldn't really lose five minutes and a half uh, half um, marathon yeah but yeah. In, until that point i had no idea how far
0: behind otherwise guys were and then in terms of like other exciting stuff that happened in the lead up to the race is it right that you didn't have a helmet the day before the race as well
1: uh so i had a helmet but i had like the a normal road helmet Okay. And I and I was supposed to get a, a new helmet from Oakley, like a TT helmet, but uh, somehow they managed to forget it.
0: Oh no!
1: Uh, that was a bummer. But, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so then I just went on Instagram to ask some of the pros uh, or someone if if they could lend me a helmet for the race, and um, some guys from Ekoi or something just gave me a helmet, and it was yeah, it was nice.
0: Awesome. But I got.
1: And it was also quite chill because the girls were racing the day before.
0: So I knew like at least someone has a spare helmet from the girls' side. Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay. It wasn't stressful. So you, you're into T2. There's three of you together. You know you've got a podium sewn up. Where was your where was your mindset at this point? What were you, you thinking? Obviously, you're lining up against, everyone knows, Ali Brownlee. Rudy Von Berg's got a great reputation as well. Um, what were you thinking at that point? Uh, I was
1: thinking just to hold my own pace. So I had a, a goal of running uh, 3.07. So that was like my pace. So I uh, I just went out of what I thought was going to be my pace. And then I saw Ali and Rudy lost a lot of time in T2 sitting down.
0: I was going to say, you had an amazing T2, didn't you? You really... I had a normal T2
1: for me, I would say. Normal for you. Love it. Coming from ITU racing, like, you're not not sitting down in the T2. Like, this is racing. This is not like... (laughs) Yeah. So I I gained a lot of seconds there. And then, not even 2Ks in. I think Ali passed me in a crazy speed. And until then, I had had run 310 pace. So I... I guess, 6.20 for 2K, and he lost 20 seconds in T2, and he gained 20 seconds in 2K, so he was been running 20 yeah, Ks an hour for the first 2K just to catch me, and he yeah. just came blasting past, and I only really thought, either he's in incredible shape, or he doesn't really know how to pace himself, And uh, but the mind kind of goes quite negative when you get past, so I just thought... Okay, I will claim second place. It's still good, but uh, yeah. But like 500 meters later, my brother was standing there and he said, Ali has been blown up before. He has, uh, he has shown before that he can really pace himself. So just keep your mind um, positive and you can take this. And for that done, I just watched my watch,
0: see that the pacing was right and it slowly gained on him. Yeah, nice. And then you, you managed to overtake him by about... Was it at about the 5k mark where you caught him? Was it uh, the first, first yeah, turnaround? something like that. Yeah, just before the first turnaround.
1: And my plan was actually to just uh, stay in his back because it was slight headwind on the way back. But uh, I was running behind him and he had kind of had a strange like um, rhythm with his legs. So it was kind of hard running behind him. So I decided really fast that... Yeah, it's, I'm not saving any energy staying behind him because it's so stressful to watch his legs. <laughs> then I just passed him. Yeah.
0: <laughs> that was, a, I mean, that was a really brave. I thought it was a really brave move to go straight by at the 5K mark because you often see these races play out where the two leaders are run side by side and play cat and mouse. And in retrospect, you know, it was clearly the right decision to do to go by him. But I thought it was really brave at the time for you to kind of, you know. We didn't know how fast the pair of you were running, but to to pass him back at the 5k mark, I thought was really ballsy.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I felt really confident also. Like up until there, I had catched him by a lot and he was not running a good pace. He was like adjusting the pace a lot. So that's not a a sign of uh, a fast run. Like if you're just running like slow and fast and slow and fast, that's like, if you're doing that, it may be a sign of weakness. I was running like steady pace, the same almost the whole way. So,
0: uh, yeah, I was feeling great. Awesome, man. And and that was it for the race, wasn't it, from that point on? 15K solo. You looked, yeah. you looked very controlled the whole way. What point did it sink in you were actually going to win? And what was your brother saying to you?
1: <laughs> My brother was actually saying he was... I don't know if he was trying to keep my mind on other things, but he said, like, you have gained 3,000 followers on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe he tried to distract me from the, from the racing or something just to keep myself entertained or I don't know. But it, it worked because I, was, I wasn't actually feeling really tired until the last few case. So, uh, yeah, I knew I, I had it when uh, Alice suddenly lost, like, 110 or something. I guess that was 12k in the run, so it certainly lost quite a bit. So, yeah, that's when yeah. I knew I, I had it.
0: And and it certainly looks from the articles that I've read that um, obviously you'd had some decent success that year. You'd had uh, you'd had a third place in Bermuda, where you and Casper and Christian went one two three. You had fourth at the Olympic test event. Yeah. But in terms of being a pro, you're still very young at sort of 22, 23 years old. You didn't have very much, by the way, of personal sponsors at the time. You'd obviously been super quick when you raced out at, I would think, was it Abu Dhabi that you went really, really Bahrain. fast? Bahrain. You yeah. and Christian, similarly, yeah. you went super, super fast there. So, um, But again, it was, it was interesting even watching the coverage from Ironman because I think that performance had gone a bit under the radar and, and commentators were sort of saying, well, you know, Maybe this kid's gone too fast. He must be, yeah. <laughs> you know, he must be amazed to be up here with Ellie Brownley. And, and we were sitting here looking at, you know, your previous and going, no, no, he's he's got the previous to do that. Now I don't know whether anyone would have picked you before the race to be a winner. You were definitely one of those like dark horses. Yeah. So how did your life change after the after winning the world championships and really coming from almost from nowhere in the public consciousness?
1: Uh, like in terms of myself. Nothing has really changed. I was pretty confident already before the the World Championship, but maybe um, it, it's always good to have the confirmation that you are as good as you think you are. <laughs> <laughs> but in terms of like international recognition and sponsors, yeah, it's it's totally upside down now. And I don't know if you're aware, but I got a like a semi superstar status in Taiwan also. <laughs>
0: Yeah, now tell us about this because this is, <laughs> this is all down to the mystery hats that you were wearing, wasn't it? The hat with yeah. the, ta- the Taiwanese racing. So tell us the story of the, of the cap.
1: Yeah, uh, uh, before the test event, we were training in uh, Japan and I just found a, a, a hat on, a, um, on the side of the road where we were training and I thought it looked cool so I just started wearing it and uh, I actually wore it in a world championship because in T2 I had my glasses and the gels for the run in the cap, so to save some extra time in T2. So that's the part of the sequence why I'm so fast in T2. So I just grabbed the cap with everything inside it and just started to run and then fixed things while on the go instead of sitting down. Yeah. As you never do. <laughs> <clears throat> and then I just wore it. And um, I guess one of the pictures of me crossing the finish line went viral in Taiwan. And people are starting wondering, why is the world champion wearing a Taiwanese hat and uh, it turns out the hat was from uh, a temple there and I didn't know what it said. I just, yeah, used it. And then I was invited over there and uh, visited the temple where the hat was from. And it was a couple thousand meeting there just to have selfies and <laughs> something from me. And it was, yeah, I was traveling there with uh, my manager and it was an awesome for the experience.
0: Amazing! So you, you've now gained this kind of. Did I did I read somewhere that the temple had to have twenty thousand of these hats produced because now everybody wants to wear one. Yeah,
1: and that that is old numbers. I don't know what the numbers are now, but I, <laughs> it's uh, a lot of people there wearing these hats.
0: So you became you became like a a national figure of uh, of. of, of people rejoicing for you over in Taiwan. Yeah. Did that did that help with uh, the bike deal with Giant because they're based in Taiwan, aren't they?
1: Yeah, I guess it uh, it helped a bit. They are based in Taiwan, uh, but uh, I guess they just wanted someone new also. So, of course it helps to be uh, recognized in the country of where the sponsor is from, but I hope if they wanted to support me regarding of uh, my
0: hat, i not. <laughs> it, it's funny, isn't it? How a little thing like this can open the door possibly yeah. to to a big company. That's, that's yeah. amazing. Really cool. So right. Going back to, going back to when you were a kid, how did you end up getting into triathlon in the first place? You mentioned that you were, you were a bit of a cyclist when you were younger. So how did the, the cycling then develop into doing triathlon?
1: Yeah, I was both, both a cyclist and a runner, but being a cyclist was like more fun and i was better there but i still ran like 16 10 when i was 15 so that's pretty good for a 5k
0: time so uh, yeah
1: uh, but it's not like international level level or anything um but then it come a time where you have to choose what you're gonna specialize in and uh, i um didn't want to stop running and i didn't want to stop cycling and i knew like if i'm gonna win let's de france or something i couldn't really run as much as i i would like to in the future and just do cycling so then i decided to instead of giving up running i also needed to start learning to swim and so then, then it then it was triathlon from there
0: on and how old were you at the point you decided to swim then
1: uh I guess I started swimming in a club when I was uh fourteen, fifteen and then I stopped competitive
0: cycling when I was sixteen. Okay. Something like that, yeah. So you weren't one of these guys who was uh who was swimming from you know from a very early age, fourteen or fifteen is, is like quite late, isn't it, for, for yeah. someone to take up swimming. And- and swimming has been really,
1: really challenging for me. It's such a technical sport, and uh, it doesn't matter how strong you are. If you're not pushing the water in the right direction, it's not going anywhere. Yeah. So it has been a real challenge to uh, to become a swimmer, and uh, I'm not close to being where I want to be yet, but it's, but it's a daily struggle, and uh, luckily it's going in the right direction, and hopefully I will be in the front
0: pack in, in not too long. And how do the swims play out for you at the, at the Olympic distance level when you're racing at WTS races or Super League or something like that? Do you consider that to be the, the weakest of the three? Yeah, definitely the weakest. And uh, the
1: problem is uh, sometimes it's okay and I could be close to the first group, but other times it's just like far off the pace and it's not reliable at all what I'm doing right now. It's like throwing a dice and see where I, <laughs> where I finish. So, and, uh, I tell you what it's yeah. so
0: good to hear the world champion say that as well because that's every age group's experience experienced yeah. swimming as well some days they have a good swim and other days a terrible swim and you can't put your finger on why it's happened oh. so yeah. it happens all the way to the point that still happens when you're world champion that's great yeah. to know
1: I don't know if it's good to know because then you know no matter how much you're swimming it's still going to be like a random result <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah uh, but swimming is definitely where I put in my most of my energy not right now because all the pools are closed in Norway but um, yeah it's where I we are definitely to uh,
0: improve to get Olympic gold okay so um, let's talk about right now a little bit then how how are you adjusting to the situation right now with with all the pools being closed what what are you managing to do if anything to try and help and maintain your swim
1: uh, I actually have a neighbor who has like uh, a spa pool. So it's just a really small one. And no, like, it's not like an endless pool. So it's not like jets coming uh, towards you. It's, yeah, it's just like a, a hot tub, basically a big hot tub.
0: Okay. And, you and, you there, did... I
1: can, and I can attach like rubber bands around my feet or hips and then I have uh, some kind of swimming. But it's not like real swimming. And yeah. I don't think I get any better of it. I just
0: doesn't get as worse as it, it could be yeah well at least you're managing to get something done during this time i suppose it would be yeah might' it not be very difficult if you're in a situation where you can't do anything at all and yeah yeah yeah
1: definitely but uh also the races are far away now i guess
0: it's yeah. really uncertain
1: when we can race again but uh so that kind of make the situation okay it's not like i have to really prepare for a race next week with no swimming so yeah yeah
0: yeah, yeah. And, and I suppose everyone is in the same situation as well, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the other guys that you usually train with, um, you've you've got a bit of a sort of a legendary little training group there with you and Christian Blumenfeld and Kasper Stornas. Um You all train with your coach, and I'm going to try and pronounce this correctly, is it Arid Feiton? Arid Feiton. Ah, got, I got kind of <laughs> close. I've <laughs> apologised him for yeah. me. Um, so it seems that, you've you train in a sort of similar way that pro cyclists do you're away on training camps quite a lot how does a how does a standard training block or camp or whatever work out for you how long are you away for uh
1: it kind of depends where we're going but uh like if we go in altitude the minimum week we're there is 3 weeks because we need uh the altitude effect so for altitude yeah it's basically 3 weeks And uh, sometimes even longer, depending on if we're racing and coming back up to altitude. And then we have another kind of of, um, training camp, which is heat training, where we go to Thailand. And there we are between two and three weeks. And we don't really do too much like normal training camps anymore, where we go to, yeah, not not heat and not altitude. But if we're going there, it could be
0: like three, four weeks Okay. And where do you go when you're training at altitude? Where do you choose your bases for those? Uh, we have two places now, which is the
1: best for us. The um, spring one being in uh, in Sierra Nevada. I was supposed to be there now. That's located in Spain, in 2,300 meters above sea level. And we have a lot of pro cyclists there and runners and everything. So it's a really good training center for for training.
0: Nice. Okay um and are you are you personally friendly with christian and casper on like a, on a friendly basis do you guys keep in touch or are you very much more like a professional training relationship
1: strictly professional
0: no <laughs> no we are really good friends and uh on the outside
1: it may seem like we only meet christian and casper together but we are actually a big group in our way training and a big group in training camps mostly so it's not like only us three going around. It's We are a big group and we are extremely dedicated. And, uh, yeah, it's it's a real fun group to train with.
0: Nice. And is the whole group, are you all Norwegians or is it more of an international mix? Uh,
1: back home in Bergen, we are a group of Norwegians and we have also one Swede training with us, Gabriel Sander. And in, uh, in other training camps, we have... Sometimes had Lisa Norden with us. She's also yeah silver medalist in Olympic and yeah, yeah. also Swedish. And we also have one Austrian girl.
0: So it seems like uh, you know triathlon in Norway <coughs> is on the up at the moment. Very much so. Um, what do you what do you think has contributed to you guys all having the success that you've had? Um. I would say it's a bit of
1: luck, because me and Christian are almost the same age, coming from the same town, uh, having the same values in training and uh, everything, and we kind of just randomly met through triathlon. So uh, it's a bit of a luck. I don't think any of us would be as as we were if we don't have each other, and it's so random us two coming from the same city. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, but the thing that mostly made us good is our training and uh, we are extremely good at training, both like planning
0: the training, but also like doing the training and doing everything we need to do. It's amazing to think, isn't it, that you could have two Olympic medalists from one town in Norway in a year's time. Yeah,
1: hopefully it will be next year. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now you mentioned your brother a little bit earlier on. I wanted to ask about him. Is it right that he did he win Iron Man? Was it Talon?
1: <laughs> yeah. So he raced there. He got a opportunity to race in Hawaii, but he said it's uh, not his style, so he declined the Hawaii ticket. And uh, he works as a coach for some of the athletes on the national team. And he is yeah working a bit with me but not like as a coach more like uh yeah a brother
0: (laughs) as a as a big it sounds like he it sounds like he's got a good idea of mentally what you need at certain points in races it's quite sounds quite clever of him to shout the things about instagram that he did as he went by that's kind of clever coaching isn't
1: it yeah so he's uh he watched me grow up so i guess he he knows me quite well
0: yeah Very cool. Um, You've mentioned, you know, Hawaii there. Let's let's talk about that for the potential future. Is that where you see yourself going possibly post-Olympics or is it something you think someone could do, you know, Olympics and Ironman in the same kind of point in your career? So
1: uh, I had like maybe an idea of doing Kona this year because uh, after Olympics in 2021, that was kind of my, like my free year doing things I wanted to do and not really uh, doing yeah, what I have to do, like all the World Series and everything, just like racing for fun, more mm-hmm. like that. Uh, but of course now the Olympics has been postponed a year and I can't do uh, Hawaii the year before the Olympics because everything for me is about the Olympics. Uh, so... Uh, now I'm not so sure about the plan anymore, but I def- definitely have
0: to do the Hawaii race once for sure. And is the long-distance stuff something that you, that you really enjoy? Because I'd imagine coming from a cycling background, you must have done some pretty big days on the quiet, right? Uh, yeah, I rode 302 k's two days ago. Really?
1: Yeah, me and Christian was out on a, on a trip together and it was really nice. So it was nice weather for once in so we just took the opportunity to have a long day in the saddle. And you just rode the whole day. It was light, just three hundred yeah. k's all day. <laughs> yeah, it was quite nice. Yeah, but I, uh, I think I enjoy uh, World Series races much more than uh, than long distance race. I mean, Nice was fun, but that was kind of an exception because the course was so different to what it's normally like. So that was kind of entertaining the whole way. But a normal 70.3 race, it's uh, not really for me, I guess.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, is it it a different thing when you're in a kind of Dubai type course where you're down on the aero bars for two hours and all you really see is 10 feet of tarmac in front of you? Yeah,
1: it's uh, not as entertaining and the tactics are a bit more limited. So uh, one thing I love about the ITU style of racing is you have so many opportunities to do a lot of things but in in country and a and full ironman it's kind of limited how much you can play around it's kind of like a set way of of how you're gonna race i mean you have to run a marathon by yourself almost but yeah. in uh, but you you have so many opportunities
0: to race different every time and that's kind of what's entertained me the most yeah and you're still really young as well that's the other thing it's you've got plenty yeah. of time in your career to do the long stuff yeah um have you have you ever had thoughts about doing something like Norseman uh Norseman looks fun but I have to do it after the
1: career it's yeah. such a bad timing wise so Hawaii is okay because that's after then my normal season but Norseman is just like in the middle of it so it's kind of it can't be done right now
0: (laughs) maybe one day hey yeah maybe one day all right so last question then it 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 strikes me that it must be a very challenging time to be a pro athlete at the moment with with being you know all the restrictions in place but also the uncertainty around if and when you're ever going to actually get to race again have you how do you deal with that
1: uh i actually kind of enjoying right now because i one of the reasons why i'm such a good athlete is because i i love to train and uh, i love to compete but sometimes it's really stressful to always have to improve every single session like i have a plan with every session like today i'm going to improve that or yeah something and uh improvement is the most fun part of triathlon always trying to become better but sometimes it could be quite stressful to like this day I have to become better if I don't become better it's kind of like a failed day so right now I uh, the whole world has that opportunity to just uh, chill more (laughs) so I like the 302k ride two days ago I could never done that like in in a normal uh normal training situation because that would ruin like some days of training afterwards and you're tired so you can't really improve for some days and uh, now it's just training with no really um, pressure just do what you want just relax with training and really really enjoy what you're doing with no pressure to always improve yourself so uh, it's it's kind of nice but I don't know if I could do it, this for a really long time because it's, um, yeah, you're missing the opportunity to have the improvement. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I enjoy it for now.
0: Yeah, it, it does seem like if, if we let our minds wander to two, three, four months of this, that's quite hard to deal with. But if you keep yourself in the now, the yeah. three or four-week or six-week block in the middle of the year where you get to do something completely different and unstructured, if you yeah. live in the now, that's quite a good opportunity to just be completely refreshed isn't
1: it yeah so it's kind of like my season break now i we don't normally have this normal season break where other people are out partying or something i never party or anything i just uh in my season break i i train like i do now more like for the sake of training not for the sake of improvement yeah so i i actually enjoy it for
0: now and have you have you got any inklings about any races on the calendar? Is there anything that... I mean, obviously, the traditional race calendar is completely suspended at the moment, but yeah. have you heard any rumours about anything where... I was, I was reading the other day about UFC proposing to take all of their fighters to a private island and quarantine them there almost before they held a competition. Are there any rumours of anything like similar and crazy happening in the triathlon world?
1: Uh No. Not yet. <laughs> but that seems like a crazy idea. Maybe it's something uh
0: Super League could do. Well that's exactly up their street, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Fly all to a private island somewhere. Hamilton <laughs> Island, where they had the first Super League. That would be awesome. Yeah, wouldn't it? It's good thinking. Well, maybe you need to drop him an email and suggest yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> hey well listen, it's been really great catching up with you. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show, man. Um I thought you were a great guy when we met at Super League last year, and it's been great to do a long-form interview with you. So I wish you all the best, and I hope the sun keeps shining on you so you can can keep doing crazy rides.
1: I think I'm going to have a long run afterwards. We'll see. We'll see what my day brings.
0: Good man. All right, buddy Well, listen. thank you very much for your time. Yeah, thank you. See you later. This episode has been brought to us by our partners, PrecisionFuelAndHydration.com. Go onto their website and you can use their free fuel and hydration planner to receive a personalized strategy for your next race. The planner can help you understand your own carbohydrate, fluid and electrolyte needs so you can refine your own strategy during training. We all sweat differently. We've all got different carbohydrate intakes for our own bodies and for the different events that we take part in. So... They've got a fantastic tool. Get on there and use it, and it will give you a really good starting point for carbohydrate, fluid, and electrolyte needs. And Don't forget, you can also book a free one-to-one video consultation with PFNH's athlete support team, and they'll be happy to help you nail your race nutrition plan so you can perform your best at race day. So remember, we've got links in the show notes for you. Use the code OA22 for 15% off your first electrolyte order at precisionfuelandhydration.com. At teamoxygenite.com, I think we've got the most comprehensive triathlon coaching program for busy age groupers. You can book a call with me to see if you'd be a good fit for joining the team. And remember, there's links in the show notes for all these sponsors so you don't have to remember them. Until next week, have a great, safe training and racing week. I'm Coach Rob Wilby, and you've been listening to the Oxygen Triathlon Podcast. See ya!